carefully and apply what Jesus is saying to your life because we want you to flourish. Do we not, Pastor Kelly? All right. Without further ado, my friend, Pastor Kelly. Oh, wow. Thanks, Pastor Rick. I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate that half-hearted applause. That was cool. Uh, so I was reading in my, just my personal devotion this time, of, I read a verse in Psalm 116, and my amazing friend, Topher Fisher, who I don't see right now, but I'm sure he's here somewhere because he just played the drums. He's right there. We were just talking about this. It says, you, God, lead me on the path of life. In your presence is joy everlasting or the fullness of joy. Uh, does that sound to you like God's trying to take something away or he's trying to give you something? It sounds like he's trying to give you something. And what I find really, really refreshing is that he's promised to lead us on the path of life. He hasn't just said, hey, be good, do good, and then not given us any instruction for how to do that. He's promised to lead us on the path of life. Jesus comes around later on in the Sermon on the Mount. The verse Pastor Rick just quoted and says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And that's exactly what we're trying to accomplish right now. Build on the foundation. Build on a solid foundation. Okay, so when I say kingdom, what comes to mind? Uh, obviously, the Queen of England has got to be the first thing that you immediately think of, uh, or at least I do uh, right now. That's just top of mind cultural moment, I guess. But when I say kingdom, what do you think of? Like palaces, opulence, grandeur, uh, something else, uh, maybe something like imperialistic, that kind of thing. Uh, human history tells this long, involved, tangled story of kingdoms, kingdoms rising and kingdoms falling. Over and over and over, this has happened all throughout the tangled web of human history. But there's some things that never change. Even as kingdoms, great and small, come and go, human, human nature's kind of stayed the same. Like, we're not that much different, really. Um, humans still look to things like wealth and comfort and safety and sex and relaxation and success and power. We're still looking for those things to somehow make us happy even though there's this really tried and true pattern. We should know by now that that doesn't work. But a guy named Zig Ziglar said uh, I, what I think is a really great saying. He said, everybody knows, everybody here knows that you can't buy happiness, but we still want to find out for ourselves, right? <laughs> this is human history. We just keep looking to the same things over and over again, hoping that more of what hasn't worked in the past will somehow work this time. We're, we're actually a pretty predictable bunch Romans 1 explains that problem actually really clearly. Like, how could we possibly be so foolish as to do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, right? The definition of insanity. Romans 1 says that people have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and have decided that we will worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. This is, this is human history. The story of kingdoms and societies rising and falling really boils down to the cycle of us looking to and desiring the good things that God has created rather than desiring the goodness of God. And if I'm just really like wide open honest, I don't think this cognitively, but somehow my actions say, sometimes I just believe that the created stuff around me is better than God. Somehow, somehow I just act that way. I don't actually think that, by the way. If you're wondering, your pastor doesn't actually think that's true. <laughs> but my actions, they say that. 
Somehow I just desire the creation more than the creator. Well, Jesus comes along in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus gives these five discourses or mini sermons, you could say, in Matthew. Now, this is the first one and the most well-known. Matthew 5 through 7, he explains how God's kingdom is totally upside down and backward from the kingdoms of the earth. Completely upside down. And uh, I borrowed this graphic from a guy named Gene Apple, and uh, it's, um, it really kind of explains this. It, in God's kingdom, now you're, if you're really quick and smart, you probably notice that Majnik is the word kingdom spelled upside down and backwards. Uh, I'm sure that Will picked up on that right away. God's kingdom works opposite of ours in many different ways. For example, in God's kingdom, more is actually less. The more we burden ourselves down with the cares of life, the less we actually have in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, we put others first. The needs of others come before our own needs. In God's kingdom, we actually descend to greatness. You actually become humble. The path to greatness is actually the path to humility. In God's kingdom, generosity flows freely. In God's kingdom, the glory is not to us, but in God's kingdom, The glory goes to him. God's kingdom is inclusive. Jesus is for everybody. Everyone who would submit themselves to him is invited to come into God's kingdom. And lastly, in God's kingdom, the king came down and died on a cross, not sat on his throne and ruled over us, although he does that too. God's kingdom is totally upside down and backward. And in my lifetime, and in yours too, Christians have gotten confused about this. Um, And this is kind of just a broad, sweeping observation. Confused by the blending of Jesus-like values and the American dream. Putting those two things together. Confused by, honestly, church culture that has promoted things like consumerism and performance and celebrity. And quite frankly, has just cheapened the love and sacrifice of Jesus. Um, Okay, so we're just being honest about who we are. I'm not, I'm not saying it's the other guy. I'm saying it's just a problem that we, we just got to deal with. I'm, I don't say that to be critical in any way, but we've, treated, we've traded the creator for the creation. I've been guilty of it. You've been guilty of it. The church in broad strokes has been guilty of it. Slowly, we as a society, and sadly much of the church, have just begun to build on the sand. Great news is that we have the opportunity to go the other direction. So I don't, I don't say that to be critical. Uh, I say it repentantly. Uh, it's not a new thing. It's been happening ever since Adam and Eve decided that they wanted things their way instead of God's way. I just say that to say, let's be a church that seeks the upside down backward kingdom of God, who hears the word and puts it into practice. That's who we are. So we're, we're in this Sermon on the Mount I know you're like, man, that that was a really long intro. What's the sermon going to be like? I've never kept you here along. Okay, so we'll be good. We'll still end on time, I promise. So the Sermon on the Mount starts at chapter 5. We're going to be in chapter 6 this week. I'll just give you a quick recap. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' explanation about what it means to live as a citizen of God's kingdom, to live a morally upright life. But there's a plot twist because people have this habit of trying to figure out Okay, so what's the bare minimum I can do and still be good? Like, how close to the line can I get and still not have God be mad at me? Right? That's just kind of how we operate. How much can I get away with and still be on the inside? 
But Jesus says a righteous person doesn't have to ask those kind of questions because a righteous person tries to figure out how to be more generous, how to be more gracious with the people around them. A person whose life is on a solid foundation doesn't have to ask, okay, where's the line of marital fidelity? Like, how much is okay for me? Because that person is free to just pour out their, uh, their devotion on their spouse. The, the life of Christ, when you build on a solid foundation, you don't, you don't have to ask, what's the bare minimum? What's the bare minimum discipleship I can possibly do? Life on the rock is a generous and free life. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. He's not laying down rules. He's inviting us into a generous and free life. So three things he's going to address in this section. And when I say them, you're going to be so excited. You're just like, yes, I've been waiting to hear about these three things. Giving, prayer, and the one you've all been waiting for, fasting. Yes. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. That was mostly I just got a laugh. So, but Cindy, Jesus loves you. I think that's obvious right now because she said amen. Okay. Here's what's interesting about it. Okay. These three things, giving, prayer, and fasting, I just want to point out the fact that when we read them, they're assumed. Jesus doesn't instruct us to do them. He doesn't say you should do this. He says, when you do this, can we just get a collective, right, gulp, right? Okay. When you do this, he assumes that his followers are going to do these three things. So we'll just talk about each of them as we go, okay? But I want you to see the commonality in each three of them. This is what he says about each of them. He says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, don't do it for the approval of others. That's, that's really angling at the big idea. Don't pretend to be righteous. Don't pretend to be generous. Don't pretend to be self-sacrificing so that others will be impressed with you or impressed with your good deeds. He says this about each one of them. Don't do it to be noticed. Don't do them for approval. For if you do them to receive the praise or affirmation of other people, that's all you get. That's what you get. Other people pat you on the back, and then they're gone to the next thing. That's your reward. If you give a gift to help someone out, and you do it intentionally in a way that draws the attention of others, guess what? All the rewards you get is their recognition. God has no reward for that. If you pray eloquently for the sake of, um, you know, others thinking you're spiritual or smart, um, you know, just use these and thous, and everybody in the room is like, no one talks like that. Except when you're praying, right? Do you ever, you ever, maybe you do this, maybe I do this and just don't know. You ever like totally change your vernacular and your manner of speaking when you pray? As if God like spoke in old English somehow. Uh, Jesus says when you, you do that, the affirmation of the people around you, that's your only reward. That's all you get. If you perform these acts of self-discipline and self-denial and self-sacrifice so that others will say, wow, you're so disciplined and spiritual, that's all you get the admiration of others. Okay, now, that might not seem like a big deal to us, okay? These three issues definitely, as I'll say, as I'll point out, they, they had a different context back then, okay? That, that might not seem like a big deal to us, but the point is, when you do good in order to get the praise of other people, you forfeit any heavenly reward. You forfeit a reward for God. We give up this eternal reward of God's praise for a small and temporary pat on the back, and then all the people that noticed, they're gone. They've forgotten all about it. Okay, so let me, let me read Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. And uh, I've been enjoying using my big Bible. Uh, as Pastor Rick pointed out, yes, it is large print. Uh, so here we go. Matthew 6, verse 1. 
Jesus is talking, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Okay, that one half sentence, that's the big idea. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you, okay? Jesus teaches about giving and generosity and specifically about the motivation that is behind it. Now, we live in a time where we have a pretty messed up attitude about generosity and giving and supporting the people and the things that we believe in. We live in a strange time. So there's this rapper. I know. You're all like, okay. I took you for a rap guy, Pastor Kelly. Uh, her name's Cardi B. Who knows Cardi B? You know what? Shame on y'all. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, I was going to put a picture of Cardi B up on the screen so you'd get the idea, um, but if you know who Cardi B is, you also know why I didn't put a picture of her on the screen. Okay, so don't worry about it if you don't know uh, where we're going. Okay, uh, so recently, Cardi B went on this social media rant about inflation and how hard it is for regular people, not people like her, regular people to make ends meet. All good and well. Uh, okay, good. Good on you. Um, so she went on this rant, and in this rant, she went on to say just how thankful the people who know her are for her. Like, the people who know me are just, they're so thankful for me. They're so thankful, she actually said, that they have a me. And she just went on to say how she's been supporting all these people, but I just don't know how regular people make ends meet in this time. I feel so bad for the people who don't have me. That was, that was what she said. She said, what are the people who don't have me supposed to do? Okay? This is a little thing called a humble brag. You're familiar with the expression humble brag? Okay? Uh, maybe she did support some people with the millions of dollars that she's made as, a, as an entertainer. Good on you. That's, that's great. Uh, then she felt the need to jump online and make sure that everyone has the opportunity to hear about how generous she is. Okay? Now, Jesus says that she has officially received her reward. So all the 15-year-olds that follow her on Instagram... Uh, they're all excited about that. That's great. She gets that as a reward, and all the adults roll their eyes. That's it. That, that's all the reward that she gets. Now, I want to tell you a story for contrast that happens to be about my friend Kyle. Uh, it's about his grandfather. Kyle and his wife Taylor started going to church here when I was on sabbatical, and uh, they're in Hawaii this weekend. Uh, so I hope you're enjoying your trip, and since you're gone, I'm going to talk to you about you. Uh, <laughs> Let that be a lesson to you. Okay. So it's about Kyle's grandfather, Lauren. Okay. In 2004, uh, our son, our oldest son, Micah, was born. And about three months later, Brandy and I moved to the lovely metropolis of Yakima, Washington. Yes. The Palm Springs of Washington, they say. Uh, just for the record, I've been to Palm Springs, and there is no sign there that says the Yakima of California. I, I haven't found it. So, so uh, there's this church in Yakima who uh, my friend Kyle, his dad, had been volunteering to lead a little gathering for the teenagers in the church. Do an awesome job, awesome guy. And the church had decided to step out and for the first time ever, hire a full-time youth pastor, enter me. Okay, so 
Uh, here Brandy and I are, we're, this, we're a young couple with a new baby and not much money. You know, it's kind of a sweet time of life, but challenging at the time. Uh, I look back at it with fondness. Uh, so now we moved to Yakima, and we're a young couple with a new baby and even less money, and now far away from home. So this is kind of where we're at. And it was really, for me, the best of times and the worst of times. I had the privilege and the joy of spending a few years with all of these teenagers and loving on them and introducing many of them and their friends to Jesus for the first time and kind of walking with them. And that was, that was so awesome. Uh, but like in our own home life, like we had what we needed and nothing else. Like it was, it was like an ongoing, it was, it was hard. You've been there, many of you have been there. It was, everything was tight. And uh, so when the time came for us to finally you know, move away, uh, my last night there, my last week, we had a gathering with the students. Many of their parents came. A lot of them I was meeting for the first time on my last night, and that was great. They were just, um, you know, a lot of them just stood up and expressed their, their love and gratitude, and it was awesome. I'll never forget it. Many of them, they're in their 30s now, and, and many of them I'm still in connection with. And so it was awesome. And at the end of that night, just about everybody else is gone. Kyle's grandpa, Lauren, walks up to me. He puts out his hand for a handshake. And Lauren has the roughest hands I have ever felt or seen in my life. And immediately when I shook that hand, I was like, this dude has worked hard for a humble living. Lauren had made his living as a, uh, he worked on the refrigeration systems in the fruit warehouses around Yakima. If you've been there, you know, it's, a, it's an agricultural community. And uh, his wife, Trudy, worked at a craft store. They were not wealthy people, but they were very generous people. And in Lauren's extremely rough hand was a wad of $100 bills. And he said, I know money's always tight when you're a young family. I hope this will help you get where you're going. And I was immediately aware that that stack of $100 bills didn't come easily for Lauren. He worked very hard for it. Uh, and I just thought to myself, he's not a wealthy man, but he is a generous man. Now, not a lot of details of that story, but you tell me, does God approve of that type of generosity? Is God's heart stirred? Is God proud of the way that Lauren conducted himself? You better believe it. Absolutely he is. Now, it's not a referendum on Cardi B, but this is a person, Lauren, who's, who's found joy in the kingdom of God, who knows something that most people don't know, and that is that in the kingdom of God, you gain by giving away, not by storing up. And this is so logical, right? If you gain, if you, if you gain by storing up, then there's never enough because you can always store more up. But if you gain by giving away, then there's always enough because you don't need it. God is your provider. If you gain by being seen, there is never enough of affirmation. If this is what you're after, you will never have enough affirmation. I looked it up this week. Cardi B has 142 million followers on Instagram. And again, not a referendum on her. I'm just asking the question, how much affirmation is enough affirmation? Like, how many people would need to pat you on the back for you to be able to just finally say, you know what? I am good. I have arrived. I am okay with me. When you gain by being seen, there's never enough affirmation. But when you gain by what is unseen, that day, no one knew about Lauren's gesture except me and him. And when you gain by being unseen, there's always enough. If you gain by being unseen, then God will reward what is done in secret. Jesus moves on to prayer. Let's take the next step. That was it. That wasn't that painful, right? The pastor just talked about giving, and it didn't even hurt. It wasn't, wasn't that bad at all. 
verse 5, Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. I know that's a big temptation for all of you. (laughs) Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Uh, Okay, this one's kind of weird for us, because I'm confident that no one here prays in public to be cool. If you're praying in public to be cool, you're doing it wrong, okay? It's just not part of our context. We're a much shallower people than that. Uh, You know, we do things like pour buckets of ice water over our head to be cool, right? Those are the things we do. Or, you know, whatever the TikTok challenge of the day is, that's what we do. Did you know that last school year, there was a TikTok challenge to steal the bathroom, the, the sink out of the bathroom at your school and post it on the internet for people to see? Do you know that was happening? Okay. I only know that because I have uh, kids. And so it turns out we haven't hit bottom yet. Uh, who knew? <laughs> Praying hypocritical prayers in public would actually be a significant step up from there, I feel like. But this is where we are, okay? In their day, it was different. In their day, the more spiritually devout people perceived you to be, the more you were esteemed in your community. Okay, so, so it's kind of the same thing. Like, they're, they're trying to do something cool to gain attention and impress people. And in their day, it was things like stand on the street corner and pray out loud. Some of them would even have, no joke, trumpeters come along and announce that this is about to happen. This is where the saying, toot your own horn, is actually where it came from. It actually came from the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so people would go out in public and just wax on eloquently to impress bystanders at how proficiently they spoke to God. They'd stand up and pray these lengthy prayers full of, you know, lofty language and so that people would just think they were really smart, really spiritual, and obviously more pleasing to God than the rest of us. This is where they were at. I'm so thankful that I wasn't alive then because I would just be like perpetually annoyed. This is such an irritating thing. Now, There's this confusing part, though, because Jesus said, when you pray, pray in secret. Don't don't do it out in public to impress people. When you pray, pray in secret. But if you've been here the last couple weeks, hold on a second. He said earlier that we're the light of the world and that that light should be made to shine, not stick it under a basket. Don't, Don't shove your light under a basket. Let it shine. So, But now he's saying go in secret. So, like, which is it? Chapter 5, he's combating this temptation to be a fair-weather Christian, right? I love Jesus when I'm around other people who love Jesus, but when I'm around people who don't, uh, I I shrink back. He's combating that in chapter 5, but right here, he's confronting something totally different. Here, he's confronting the sin of pride. So what do you want from me, Jesus? Which way is it? Is it secret? Is it let the light shine? What do I do? Well, There's this really great Bible teacher named Jen Wilkin, okay? If you're a woman in this room or a man, and you're just like, I just want to hear a great uh, female voice teach the Bible, I totally recommend Jen Wilkin. She's she's amazing. She actually said it this way on, on this particular issue. She said, we should show when we're tempted to hide, and we should hide when we're tempted to show. That's how you know which it is. If your temptation is to step out and make sure everybody can see me, 
that's when you should go into secret and have a conversation with God. But if your temptation is to shrink back, I don't want anybody to know exactly where I'm at on this Jesus thing, that's when you should step out and let it shine. Now, Jesus doesn't say pray standing, pray kneeling, pray at a particular time, a particular place. He, he doesn't give instructions about the when and where, but what the Bible does teach us in 1 Thessalonians 5 is that we should pray without ceasing. There's not a specific when and where. We should pray in all circumstances at all times. Jesus doesn't give us the right time or posture, but he does give us a formula in verses 9 through 15. This is what he says. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, so there's this flow, these, these recommendations or this sequence that he goes through. Praising God, seeking God's will, asking for his provision, uh, bringing your needs to him. Seeking and offering forgiveness. Uh, man, I hope that's something that you remember to do. It's important for your own heart to confess your sin to God, but it's also important for us to seek um, to, to sort of purge our heart of what we're holding against other people before God. Ask God's help for that. And the last thing is spiritual battle. Okay, let me just draw a line that might help you grasp the point of this, okay? At the beginning of this section on prayer, Jesus says, don't do it in a way that draws attention to yourself. Don't do it for the praise of men. That's, that's sort of the precursor to the Lord's Prayer, what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And now he gives a sample. And you'll notice that this sample prayer, here's kind of the big idea of it. It's God-centric, not me-centric. My prayers have a tendency to be me-centric. Uh, like, I, I'm cool with, like, starting off, like, uh, thank you for this day, and then I get right to talking about myself. Uh, which is okay. God wants to hear about you. But this prayer is very God-centric. It doesn't say, God, I'm just so glad you have a me. <laughs> it says, I'm glad I have a you. God, glory to you. Your will be done. You're my provider. You are my righteousness. You are my victor. It's God-centric. When you pray, seek God and his will with truth and sincerity. Pray is, uh, it's a time of worship. It's a time to thank God. It's a time to give God praise. It's a time to repent. And yes, it's a time to ask God for the things that you need. But one of the best descriptions I heard of prayer, sometimes we, uh, we use the description, it's talking to God, which it absolutely is. Uh, but I had a professor who used a different phrase, and I was like, that's what I've been looking for. Like, that's the description I've, I've tried to, to come up with. And he said, Prayer is being present with Jesus. It's, it's not talking out into space. It's being present with Jesus, which can be admittedly very difficult to do, especially if I'm choosing my words to be respected by others or to make sure that I say it right. If I'm, if I'm focused on that, I'm just not present with the Lord. So let me ask you, when you pray, are you present with the Lord? I, sometimes I just need to envision... Jesus sitting in the chair across the room from me. Are you present with the Lord? Is there space in your life for you to be alone with God and pray in secret? Is there room for that? 
Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm not tempted to pray out loud in public. I, I don't think I act in arrogance when I do pray. Here's why you should care about this, okay? This is kind of a contextual thing, but here's why you should care. Here's why it should matter to you and I right now in our context. Verses 4, verses 6, and verses 18 that we haven't gotten to yet, he says the same thing. He says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's work that gets done, just you and the Lord. There's work that happens that way. God on the throne, me sitting before him, him as the source and the benefactor, me as the beneficiary of his kindness and love. Me alone with God, seeking his will, seeking his forgiveness, seeking his protection, seeking his provision, and ultimately seeking his glory and his will to be done. There's work that gets done there that just can't be done if I'm going 100 miles an hour or I'm just focused on saying the right thing, okay? Should you pray in public? Should you sit down to a meal and take a moment to thank God for that meal? Should you pray with your kids before bedtime? A thousand times, yes. Absolutely, you should pray in public. Should you pray with your community group? A thousand times, absolutely. Should that be the sum total of your dialogue with God? Well, I think Jesus is clear. Your heavenly Father who listens to the quiet prayers that come from the heart, he will respond. Yes, you should pray in public. Yes, carve out time to be present with Jesus. Okay, let's do the last one, fasting, because I know that's what you all came for. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, I just want to call attention to something really quick right there. If you read the Old Testament prophets, I think I've mentioned this before, uh, they speak from God to the people. But what they say, they say phrases like this, the Lord says, or thus says the Lord. But notice what Jesus says. He says, I say. Truly I say to you. He's asserting his authority as God. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, let's just um, clear something up in the simplest manner possible, because I know somebody here is thinking to yourself, okay, thanks fasting, and why should I do it? Uh, I mean, you probably know what fasting is, right? Like, just you know, it kind of is what it says in the simplest manner. In short, it's depriving yourself of something, most often food or drink. Uh, the purpose of fasting, though, that's where it gets kind of sticky. Uh, that's where it gets kind of tricky for us. Okay, the purpose of fasting is not to lose weight, although that is just sort of a potential fringe benefit. Um, the purpose is not to break a habit, although you know what? Maybe that's something that some of us need to do, okay? Uh, the purpose of fasting is multifaceted, faceted, but I just want to point out two of the core functions. Either one of these things is a reason in and of itself to practice fasting, okay? When you fast, when you deny yourself something that's important to you, uh, food and drink is a common one because it doesn't get much more important than that, right? But it could be anything. Uh, it could be anything that is important to you. When you deny yourself something that is important to you, what it does is it positions your relationship with God, your affection for God, your need for God, above every other relationship, affection, and need. 
It says, God, I recognize that you are my highest need. I recognize that you are my provider. You are my protector. You are my most important relationship, okay? And what it does in that regard is that it removes everything else from the throne of our hearts, which is a really important reason to do that, especially for us, maybe even more so for them, because we live in a day and a time where we have more than anybody has ever had in the history of the world. Uh, The overwhelming majority of, think about it this way. If you're in trouble in our society, what do you do? Dial 911 and someone comes to help you. Uh, That's not been a thing in like times past. Uh, There are different places all over our city where if you have no food, you can go there and they will just give you food. Okay, now just, just think about that. That's never been a thing. Like in history past, just the basic needs of survival were hard to come by. This is important for us to be able to say no to some things at times because our minds are more clouded with with all of the stuff we have than than humans have probably ever been. It removes those things off the throne of our hearts and puts God there. That's the primary function. A second function, and I would say probably the secondary function uh, behind that first one is that fasting is the spiritual practice of self-control. It's a way to decrease or quiet the power of the flesh. You know, you're just kind of like your mind's kind of always screaming, I want this, I want that. It's a way to decrease that or quiet that just a little bit and to sort of increase the influence of the Spirit in our life. Jesus says, hey, when you're fasting, don't go around making a big deal about how spiritual and devoted to God you are. Devote yourself to the Lord and his reward is the reward that you really want. That's what he says about fasting. Okay, so let's not go any further with that. What's the big idea? What, what's the big idea after all this, okay? Um, I don't think of any, that any of you are going to run out and really struggle with the temptation to have trumpeters come and announce that you're about to pray. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen. So if we're not at risk of doing like these exact things that he addresses, then what's the principle that translates from their context to our context, Okay. When you do good things as a way of seeking the approval of people, um, like, like if I give as a means of seeking the approval of people, I'm, I'm actually not giving anything. I'm buying their approval. That's a, that's a huge difference, okay? It's possible for us to do the right thing, to do the noble thing, to do the righteous thing, and have it be hypocritical and ugly. That, that is possible, a good thing done for ugly reasons, it still has a reward. People might pat you on the back. Uh, in our society, we're blessed to get a tax break for generosity, which is great. Praise God for that. Uh, but what it doesn't accomplish is it doesn't earn the praise of God. And ultimately, that's what we should be after. Uh, in this temporary moment on earth, being seen matters to us. But in God's everlasting kingdom, the condition of your heart is what matters. That's really the principle behind it all. In God's kingdom, the condition of your heart is what makes the difference. So so let me just tell you how to win at this, okay? Do your good deeds. Jesus mentions three of them, giving, praying, fasting. Could be a host of other things, though. Do them out of a desire for God, not for the reward of mankind. Uh, Some of those may be peripheral benefits, but do them out of a desire for God. You do not have to do good for God to love you, to save you, to be 
in his kingdom. Jesus was already perfect for you. I just want to be clear about that. But you do have the opportunity to find your joy and delight in him. We have that opportunity. So let me, uh, let me just wrap this up, okay? Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. My dream as your pastor is for us to be a church who builds their life on the rock and bids everyone we know, hey, come get on the rock. I want all of us to live on a solid foundation so that when we go through the turbulence, we're not shaken. And I want all of the people we know and love to have that same foundation. So let me close with this one verse parable. It's not in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a little bit later on in the book of Matthew. Jesus told about the difference between the momentary kingdom of earth and the everlasting, right-side-up, forward kingdom of God. Matthew 33, 44. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that was hidden in a field. A man found it, and then he quickly put the dirt back over it, and he went and sold everything that he had to buy that field. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Sell the momentary praise of men. Sell the momentary gain so that you can gain the praise of your Father in heaven, who, seeing what is done when no one is looking, will reward you. Uh, I would admit, sometimes it's easy to feel small, isn't it? You just kind of got this quiet life. Nobody really knows what I'm doing, uh, especially if you're a mom. You're like perpetually doing things for your children, maybe your husband too, and, and a bunch of other people. And it's kind of like, no one really knows. Maybe you got grandkids out there and you're just praying for them. And it's like, who knows? You know, I'm just here. No one, no one cares. Maybe it's easy to feel small, but your heavenly father sees what is done in secret. And your gain, your reward for that will be massive. So I just pray that our hearts would want that more than the daily stuff. Amen? You with me? All right, let's pray, and then we will wrap it up. Lord, thank you uh, that we have this eternal kingdom. And though we can't, we can't see it in full from where we are right now, God, we know that it's out there. We know that you have promised an eternity with you beyond what we can imagine. So, uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a mature view of that, to trade in what is small and temporary for what is vast and unending. We thank you for your grace to just keep working with us as we stumble through that. Lord, we thank you that you have provided that for us and that you have filled in every gap in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Rick. Thank you, Pastor Kelly.